Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. And that's something that if you're just patient and you hold and you buy strategically in good locations where jobs are increasing, where people are moving into, you're going to give yourself a chance to have that benefit you. Best ever listeners, I'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you. It's Eastern Union Funding and Arbor Realty Trust. If you're in the multifamily space, you likely recognize these names, but have you used them? Uh, I'm guessing if you haven't, then you probably know someone who has. I can tell you personally, we have used uh, Mark Belsky. He is a point person at Eastern Union Funding as a partner with us. And he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, in addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. Uh, when we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record, but we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, you know, he's brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we've built a relationship with him and Eastern Union Funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team, both Eastern Union and Arbor, on deals. And people who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor, but don't have that track record quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've, the deal you've got And assuming it checks out, he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal. So debt, equity, and potentially loan guarantors. Uh, All you need, well, you need to find a deal, obviously. Um, But besides that, you know, the other main components of the deal they can help you out with. So talk to Mark Belsky. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. And his phone number, 212-897-9875. 
Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And today, well, first off, I hope you're having a best ever weekend because today is Saturday. We got a special segment called Situation Saturday. And here's the situation. You want to build wealth and then you want to live off the wealth. And fortunately, we've got a returning guest to come talk to us about this. He just wrote a book called Retire Early with Real Estate, How Smart Investing Can Help You Escape the 9 to 5 Grind and Do What Matters More. How you doing, Chad Carson? Hey, I'm very good, Joe. Thanks for having me on again. My pleasure. Enjoyed our first conversation and looking forward to this conversation. Congrats on the new book. A little bit about Chad, just to jog your memory. He began investing in 2003 at the age of 23. As I mentioned, he just wrote the book on retiring early with real estate. And you can say hi to him and learn more about what he's got going on at coachcarson.com. There's also going to be a link to go check out the book too in the show notes. So with that being said, Chad, our conversation today is going to be tactical ways for how to build wealth. And then after we've built it, how do we live off of it? So first, can you give us some context about your background and why you're an expert in this particular topic? Sure. When I first started, you mentioned I started when I was 23. And I think I like a lot of people I and mean, everybody has their different life points. But when I was starting, it was all about putting food on the table. I was a full-time investor. All right, how can I flip a house? How can I make some income just to actually pay my bills? So that was always my first and forefront in my mind. But as I moved forward, as I kind of stepped back from the business a little bit, it became more than a job. It was a wealth building vehicle, which is something that is actually going to grow over time. I'm going to grow my net worth from something really small when I first started to something bigger. And then eventually kind of hit that magic point, some people say, where you can actually live off your rental income. It's not completely passive. I don't believe anything's ever 100% passive, but you're to a point where you're not spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week grinding at it. You're actually maybe spend a couple hours a week paying a few bills, but you actually still have that rental income coming in consistently. And so that's been sort of my journey as well is that I started off flipping houses, got started after a few years, saving up a little bit of money, started buying rental properties, and then evolving to the point where about 16 years later, where I am now, I'm mainly with a business partner. The two of us have rental properties. We still do a flip here and there, and we're more stable. We have rental income in a small college town. So a lot of student rentals, some single family houses, and we've kind of gotten to the point where we have other people managing most of the day-to-day stuff for us. And we can use that rental income to do other things, which for me is travel. My family and I went to Ecuador the last 17 months. And so we were able to use that rental income to pay the bills on the other side of the equator. That's incredible. And the first time and the only other time we've talked on the show is episode 457. That was over 1,000 days ago. Episode 457, it's titled How to Stay Local and Dominate. And at that time, you owned 57 residential units in Clemson, South Carolina. Where are you at right now? We've got around 90 now. So since that episode, we bought a value-add multi-unit property that we raised the rents on and did some improvements to. And that was actually just before I went to Ecuador. So we were kind of in a dilemma point where we had a lot of capital that we were either going to use it to pay off a bunch of debt and just sort of ride into the sunset that way and just kind of chill for a while. Or if we find a really good deal that we know we could add some value to and increase our cash flow, 
we'll do that. So we used the capital for that big project and it turned out pretty well. We've raised the rents from 375 per unit, which is super low to about 650 per unit and cash flowing nicely stabilized. So that's what we've done since then. In still, order, still in the Clemson area. Okay. In order to increase those rents, how much did you put into each unit? The total investment was 250 grand. So let's say approximately 10,000 per unit, a little bit okay. under that. So you've got approximately 90 rental units. Congrats on that. About on average, how much do they cash flow each? With that stabilizing, I think between my business partner and I, with all units, it's about 100, 150 a month per unit, somewhere in there. Okay. We have some that are a little bit more leveraged than others. Some are free and clear. And it's pretty low rent market. Some of the stuff we have left over from pre-2007 and 2008, we have little mobile homes that rent for 400 bucks and that kind of thing. So your margins are pretty tiny on those. But over time, it's gotten better and better. And you have a business partner in most of these deals? Just the two of us. So I had one guy that we started 16 years ago, 50-50 partners and started off, I would be the acquisitions guy, private money guy, finding the money. He would manage the remodels and manage either selling them or renting them. And that's evolved a little bit since then. He's got another business that he spends a lot of time on, but we've kind of maintained that whole structure of where we're 50-50 partners and it's worked out really well. Very cool. So 13,500 bucks, 50-50 partners. So you're bringing in about 6,700 bucks a month on this rental portfolio. It might uh, be a little bit more than that. I might've done my math. It's probably for each of us, eight to 10 grand a piece. Wow. But then we've reinvested a lot of that money. I don't take all that money out. So it's typically some of that money is dividends. Some of it we reinvest in paying down debt or buying new properties, that kind of thing. Yep. Asset management, baby, right? <laughs> okay. So eight to 10K a month for best ever listeners now, now that we've got context for where you're coming from, the outcome of our conversation is to help the best ever listeners with some tactical things or ways to one, build wealth, and then two, once we built it, live off the wealth. So how do we want to approach our conversation? There's different camps within the real estate investing world. There's no right or wrong here, but I think the voice that I kind of speak for a lot is somebody who's similar to me. I'm going to talk about smaller business and people are going to hear 90 units and think, yeah, right. That's not really that small, but it's all kind of relative. There's people who have businesses where they go out and own a thousand units. There's people who have rental businesses where they own three units. And I sort of lean towards the smaller kind of do it yourself type landlord is something that's resonated more with me. We have our own little management business. We stay small in one market. So in, in terms of building wealth, real estate for me is a really simple game in some ways. It's not easy, but it's simple. And there's a couple major paths that I write about in the book that you can use to build wealth. One of those that I think we all are pretty familiar with is just a simple buy and hold rental property. But what I try to get into with the tactics is when you buy a, a rental property and you say, I'm going to hold this for 10 to 20 years, how are you actually building wealth? What are the mechanisms that take that rental property that you buy, which maybe has a little bit of cash flow up front, but then turn that into wealth, turn that into increased cash flow that you can actually live off of and use in your day-to-day life? So what is that? And one of those, which we don't have a lot of control over, is just sort of passive appreciation. Mm-hmm. You know, buying in a good location, the property tends to go up in value. And I have benefited from that for sure because I bought properties 12 years ago, 15 years ago, that just by holding on in a good location over time have kept up with inflation or better. So that's absolutely a mechanism. That's something that if you're just patient and you hold and you buy strategically in good locations where jobs are increasing, where people are moving into, you're going to give yourself a chance 
to have that benefit you. So I think that's part of it. But then there's also some more active tactics that I've always tried to use. Some of those, I mentioned that 28 unit property that I was talking about in the beginning. What are the ways we can add value to a property to find an opportunity to use your entrepreneurship. I like properties where somebody's mismanaged that and there's a lot of vacancy and you can fill up those vacancies and increase the value of the building that way. I like buy and hold properties where I see some opportunities to build something on the property, like add a washer and dryer building that you can make some coin laundry money from, or Mm -hmm. there's a ton of different ways. This is like the multi-unit investors like you, Joe. People are like so good at that, of finding all these hidden income opportunities. So I think when we think about buy and hold, it sounds kind of simple and boring in the beginning, but when you think about it and say, all right, I'm right here with this property, what's the way I can maximize the value, maximize the income, and think about that as your wealth building mechanism. That's been a big part of my own success is sort of using that entrepreneurship and not just sitting passively, doing both, like benefit mm-hmm. passively and also benefit from your entrepreneurship. What are some other ways you've increased income at your properties? So washers and dryers, I mentioned was a pretty basic Uh one. I've allowed pets, which was kind of a dilemma for me back and (laughs) forth. I was like, you know, property managers like, yeah, we could get a lot of these students who want pets. And I just had mixed experiences in the past, but I have found we can add pet rent to that. I'm kind of keeping track of the numbers on whether that's going to be a net win or net loss, but that's certainly been one for me. The other has been changing use. Let's say I'm renting to a family who sort of sees themselves as one unit and they have one set of income coming in. And instead of doing that, you have a two-bedroom unit. I could rent, for example, in a niche like student rentals, which in my case is sort of my niche. Mm -hmm. By niching down, I have two students who think about each of their rooms as sort of a separate income unit. So they think about it per bedroom, whereas a family thinks about it like this one rent for the whole unit. So just by transitioning it from a family unit to a student rental unit, Mm -hmm. I've been able to increase rent as well because of that different mentality, that different demand, different marketplace. So I think shifting who your tenant base is, whether that's students, whether that's group rentals, whether that's medical students. If you can find some kind of niche and serve whatever that tenant needs, find a way to serve their needs really well, that has a huge increase in income opportunity. That concept is fundamentally sound when you're talking about it in terms of, I'm talking about the changing the use, because what that reminded me of is when other investors buy a plot of land And then they subdivide it out. Basically, it's the concept of multiplication, right? (laughs) Like you multiply your income streams through some creative method. So in your case, you're changing the use. So your focus in recommendation for building wealth is buy and hold deals. And you've got a couple ways to do it. One is passive appreciation. Let's cross our fingers. Hopefully we buy in a good location and all's well, but might not. So therefore, the second thing is the adding value to the property, mismanagement, adding washers and dryers. You've allowed pets. Jury's still out on that. Changing the use from families to student rentals. Anything else that you can think of that you've done? There's one that's sort of a hidden opportunity that I find a lot of investors don't pay attention to, and that's similar to use, but it's looking at the zoning of a property. And I think this is very, very relevant in urban areas. Typically, the most competitive areas often are the areas where everybody wants to live, where land is really at a premium, where it seems hard to find deals. And the best deals are often like hidden below the zoning. So what I mean by that is if you study your zoning, and I learned a lot of the zoning because I was on the planning commission in my little town for a couple of years. I learned a ton. I had no clue up front about how the development process and the zoning process works. But I started looking at maps of all the zoning and you'll start noticing trends. You'll notice that there's little single family houses 
sitting on this one parcel that's zoned RM4, which in my town means that's the most dense multi-unit zoning. Or you might have a single family house, but it's on a duplex zone. And when you start studying the zoning, there's all sorts of nuances. For example, you might be able to carve that lot, cut it in half, build another duplex on the back of the lot with a driveway. Mm-hmm. So like, I think those are things that developers really study and people who kind of go from the ground up and build from the dirt. But we, you know, I say we mean people who are kind of smaller, do-it-yourself kind of landlords or people who buy rental properties to buy and hold don't really study that as much as developers do. But it has a huge benefit because just for an example, you might be negotiating with a seller of a property and they say, you know, I want 300000 for this property. And you run your numbers and look at your cap rate. You're like, no, there's no way. That's like a four cap or that's a five cap. You know, I just, that doesn't meet my numbers. But if you have those hidden opportunities, you look at it and you say, you know what? The back half of this property, the dirt there is worth another 50,000 bucks. And if you knew that, and if you knew you could go build another duplex on the back and increase your income that way, that could turn a deal that on the surface looks like nothing. And it can turn it into a deal just because of understanding zoning, city development processes and that sort of thing. I love it. So now there's two parts to this process. One is building wealth. Anything else as it relates to building wealth before we move on to living off wealth? Yeah, I would just add your use of leverage is another kind of point that a lot of investors think about. And and I wrote about in the book, there's not a right and wrong way to think about There's like a spectrum of people who say you should be extremely highly leveraged. And then on the other extreme is say you should have zero leverage, like Dave Ramsey style, you know, and I tried to show that there could be success within that spectrum. So my personal preference has tended to be a very conservative use of leverage, but definitely using leverage, make sure the cash flow is very strong, make sure I have mortgages that don't have balloons on them in the next two or three years, always long-term mortgages. But then I've also profiled people and found people that use zero debt and have 35 single family properties producing 15000 a month in cash flow and never use debt in the entire process. So as you're thinking about building wealth, amortizing your debt is a big part of that, but reinvesting your cash flow if you didn't have any debt or if you had little debt and just doing it that way, it takes a little longer to get going. You might have to choose markets where the prices allow you to pay cash or you and a partner to pay cash. But I guess I would just add that to your wealth building stage. You're going to have to choose what you're comfortable with and what your risk tolerance is, but there are strategies that can still work whatever you choose to do. So we built ourselves a portfolio and now we want to live off that wealth. How do we build it to the point where we can now live off of it versus we're still trying to acquire that magic financial freedom number? So this is the point where it's just some basic math. For example, for me, I started looking at saying like, what are, what are my expenses every year? Like, what are the basic, basic, basics that I need to cover for me and my family just to feel basic comforts? I'm happy with it. And I had a couple different numbers. I had just, all right, here's my just bare bones. I could do this. This is fine. If I had this much per month, let's just say that number was like 3000 bucks per month. If I covered that, we do okay. I don't have enough for like the trips and the fun stuff that I want to do, but we're okay. And then I might take another number, like let's say in my case, I'm in a smaller town, lower cost of living, but 5,000 bucks a month. And 5,000 bucks a month, I can do all the extra things I want to do. That's fine. 60,000 bucks a year. So I just started working it backwards from that saying, all right, how many properties would I need? And in my case, this kind of goes back to the debt leverage and what I'm comfortable with. How many properties would I need if they were free and clear of debt, if I had these things paid off? And I'll tell you why I lean towards that in a a moment. How many properties would I need? So for example, 
you might say, all right, I have a duplex that rents for 1200 bucks a month total. And make sure I make my math kind of simple here so I can do it in my head. That's $600 a month net after I pay all my operating expenses. So 600 a month times 10 is 6,000. So $7,200 per year is what that one property would, would 600 produce. a month times 12? Yeah, times 12 would be 7,200 okay, per year. Got it. Yep. So how many of those properties would I need to, to do that? And I don't think I made my math easy enough there. But basically when I did the math, I looked at it, it was not a lot of properties. I said, if I had these paid off, I'd have eight properties, 10 properties, maybe for me personally, would produce enough that I would have enough income to pay all of my expenses. So I guess my point there is in this transition point from building wealth to actually living off your income, it's a very different animal. When you go from having a salary or you're working a job and you have that income coming in from another source, that's a different animal from you having to produce it yourself and make sure your rentals always pay your bills. So I like to go from a more leveraged portfolio to a more conservative portfolio. That could mean having them all free and clear. That's what some people choose to do. Hey, I'm just going to do it like a debt snowball where I use all my income and I, for three or four or five years, I accelerate the pay down of all my mortgages to the point where they're all free and clear. That's one way to do it. And I mentioned earlier that we had a lot of capital a few years ago and we thought about kind of going that route. Let's just pay a bunch of stuff off. But we actually went to another decision point where we said, you know what, right now we're about 70% loan to value. Let's just get to a safer place, 40%, 50% loan to value, but not necessarily paying everything off because long-term living off your rental income, there's a lot of different risks that you need to think about. One is just having enough money to live off of, but you also have to think about inflation. You have to think about deflation. You're going to live off these things for a long time. So what we decided was kind of a happy medium is having some of our properties free and clear meaning they're lower risk, they produce a lot of income, they're stable. Other properties, highly leveraged with good, safe leverage, but those are kind of our growth properties. They're going to continue paying the loans down. And if we have massive inflation, we have some good low interest leverage that's going to benefit us in that case. And so that's sort of the decision point that all of us, if we're kind of transitioning to a more passive state with our rental properties, need to think about is what does our portfolio look like? How many properties do I need? And do I need a 150 units or could 10 or 20 units be enough to do what I want because the other side of that is the more properties you have and you're trying to be more passive with it, the more potential management issues there are. I mean, you can definitely hire people to help take care of a lot of the day-to-day stuff. But my philosophy is the simpler you can make it with your portfolio and still meet your financial needs, the better because it's just more efficient. So identify your number and the amount you need to bring in monthly and then reverse engineer that to see how many units you'll need to do that. You mentioned earlier your units cash flow around 150. It sounds like a little bit more based on the 8 to 10K a month cash flow. So what number should we use to ballpark that to determine how much we need? I think it's market driven. So I always use 1200 a month as like a gross rent number. So if you could look at a local duplex in your area or a single family house, and that was the median rent for you. And a lot of Southern metropolitan cities where I am, that's sort of a realistic number. I like to work it backwards from there and just say, all right, 1200 per month. If I had 50% expense ratio, which could be a little conservative, that might be more than some people, it might be right on, but you're going to net about 600 a month. And so I look at it that way. I say, If you were going to go the free and clear route, if you're going to say, I'm just going to pay these properties off, I would just look at it that way, say about half of my rent is 600 bucks a month. How much do I need? If I need 6,000 bucks a month, that's 10 properties. 
mm-hmm. and I would just work it backwards. For me, you know, you, my numbers are a little bit more leveraged still at this point. That's just the decision we made. So maybe you look at it and say, all right, on average, I make $200 per unit on the properties that I have. I just need to acquire and stabilize this many units at $200 a month and work it backwards that way. Anything else as it relates to building wealth and then living off wealth that we haven't talked about that you think we should? I would just say over the long run, diversification is something else I'm thinking about a lot. I'm a real estate investor through and through. I love owning assets. I love the control you have with real estate. I love the influence you can have on your returns. But over the long run, I think when you're taking like a 30, 40 year view, and this is your nest egg that's going to support you and actually kind of aggressive, I'm going to go after an entrepreneurial money. I'm thinking more about beyond real estate a little bit too. I still have a heavy portion with my properties, but within real estate, I'm thinking about being a lender a little bit more, not just the landlord. So being a hard money lender, owning some notes, but even beyond real estate, I'm thinking about equities and index funds, particularly in my retirement account, because I don't want to spend as much time on those, focus on those as much. But I like this idea that if the real estate market did really poorly in your area, you have kind of a three-legged stool. You're supporting yourself potentially with equities. You're supporting yourself with your rental properties. Maybe you have some notes here that are not as correlated with your rental properties and not just depending on one source or maybe even one location. You know, I'm very concentrated in one market. So having properties in multiple markets, having your money in multiple markets and having that diversification is a pretty smart move long run because nobody can really predict exactly what's going to happen. So spreading your bets out a little bit can make a lot of sense. Chad, how can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing and check out your book and get in touch with you? I hang out at coachcarson.com. I write a weekly newsletter there. So you're welcome. Anybody come on over there and have a lot of free information that you can check out along the lines of what we talked about today, using real estate to retire early, financial independence, a lot of case studies. So love for you to visit me there. And I also have links to my book there. It'll be on Amazon, Bigger Pockets as well. Thank you again for being on the show and talking about building wealth and then also living off the wealth. So once we've gone through the acquisition stage of getting our properties, then it's transitioning that into actually living off that wealth. The way you suggest to acquire those properties is to do buy and hold deals in good areas where you can get that passive appreciation, hopefully, but don't rely on that. Focus on adding value to the properties, looking for mismanagement, building washer dryer buildings or putting in those units, in your case, allowing pets, changing the use from families to student rentals, or just looking at the zoning and seeing what type of opportunities there are for zoning. And then also taking a look at the leverage too and optimizing it for the accumulation. That's the word I was looking for, accumulation stage. And then when you transition into the living off wealth, then perhaps optimizing it for something else. And you walk through the process for how you do that. So thanks again for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 212-897-9875. That's 212-897-9875. His email is mbel S-K-Y at EasternEQ.com. What is square made of metal and has half the operating costs of apartments? 
It might just be real estate's best kept secret. Learn more and get a free one-on-one strategy session from the experts at You Don't Know Self Storage. You can find them at ydkselfstorage.com forward slash best ever.